Good morning. Well, this morning uh, we're going to be studying somewhat of a, of a large passage, maybe a larger passage than we normally take on. Um, we'll be looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 41. And uh, because of its length, we won't read the entire passage word for word as we normally do before we start uh, looking at, at the scripture together. And as we go today, I'm sure I'm going to leave some things unexplained that, that you'd wish I'd dived more into. I'm sure you're going to have questions about some stuff that I just don't have time to, to touch on. Uh, my hope is that what, I, what we are able to talk about, you'll find edifying, but anything that's left kind of as a curiosity or a question in your mind, I'd encourage you to, to engage with people this week. Talk to your life group, talk to your friends in the, in the community, pray about it, get, get with a pastor, um, continue to push into this passage because it has so much more to give than just what I'll, I'll cover this morning. Uh, but I do hope that what we talk about today will be uh, will be great and, uh, and, and really call you to the attention of what God's doing here in this, in this word. A few years ago, uh, I was at a conference in Washington, D.C., and two women came and sat down at the table uh, across from me, and they introduced themselves, and one of them, a woman by the name of Jenny Yang, uh, who when she said her name, something was trying to tell me, that sounds familiar, uh, but she sat down and she asked me what had brought me to this conference all the way from Kansas to, to D.C., and I told her that I hadn't been invited by one of the event organizers who happened to be an author of a book that I'd read and we connected over his book. And, uh, and I proceeded to describe this book and say very nice things about the author, about the, the one author of this, of this book. And as I began telling these women more about this book, one, the one who'd sat down along with Jenny kept giving me this odd look. Uh, and she seemed to be trying to like communicate with me to her eyes in the nicest way possible. Oh my gosh please stop talking, you're making a huge mistake. And, and I couldn't understand why she was so agitated, and I, I started trying to think back through everything I'd been saying, and, and was there some way that I'd possibly mentioned something or, or, or said something that, that offended either of these women? And then all of a sudden, I remembered that this, this book I'd been referring to, the one that I'd been explaining to Jenny Yang, and, and, and as she nodded along with this amused smile on her face, this book had not one, but two authors. One of them was a guy named Matthew Sorens, who I'd been saying all sorts of nice things about and had invited me to this event. The other author was, of course, none other than Jenny Yang. So not only had I gone on and on about this book, and it's one author, uh, for, for, now I've now wasted about five minutes of this, this woman's life explaining to her, and probably explaining to her poorly, the concepts on the book that she had literally written. I have never been so ready for the Lord to go ahead and take me and bring me home than I was that very moment. It can be really, really easy to assume that you've got the right perspective on something, can't it? There's an assurance and a security in the knowledge of being right, and we, and we like to, to invest ourselves in that idea that we've got this right, and so we don't need to be concerned with another way of looking at things. But when we're confronted with evidence that reveals to us that we're, instead of being right, we're in fact very, very wrong, that can be very unsettling, and it can leave us unsure as to what to do next. And this morning, as we continue our study in the book of Acts, we'll see how the first Christians, as, as the Holy Spirit came to rest in their lives and as they engaged in, in the mission that God had given them, one of the first things they had to do was confront a people and tell them that they had, in fact, been very, very wrong about who Jesus is. Jesus wasn't just some guy who had been a good teacher and, 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 and capable of a few impressive tricks, but was now dead and, and no longer any concern. Nothing, in fact, could be further from the truth. Jesus, as we will see the Apostle Peter and his fellow Christians proclaim, is more than anyone ever assumed or imagined. Jesus is the resurrected Son of God. 
He is the Messiah that the world needs. But since the world reacted in in a way with, with hatred and fear and murderous intent at his arrival, what hope could there be of his being willing to help us and to forgive us, to save us from our sins? Praise be to God, the answer to that question ends up being, there is more hope than we ever could have imagined, ever could have deserved. So we begin in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And Pentecost is, is a celebration, part of, the, part of Israel's uh, several celebration and feast days. And, and it's about nine days after Jesus has been resurrected. We saw that back in, in chapter 1, verse 9. And about 50 days, or I'm sorry, about nine days since his ascension and about 50 days since his resurrection. And so it's been a, a number of weeks since, since Jesus had been resurrected. We're told that uh, those who were part of the believing community at this time, about 120 people or so uh, altogether, uh, they, were, they were gathered in one place, and, and quite honestly, they weren't sure what was going to happen next. They weren't exactly sure what they should be doing or, or what was going to come, but they knew. The only thing they really knew is that what they wanted to do was, was wait and try to obey the last command that Jesus had given them while he was on this earth. In, in chapter 1, Jesus had told them, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And then, exactly as Jesus had promised, their patient, obedient waiting paid off. What happens next would change not only their lives, but the lives of everyone, everywhere, all over the world, and throughout time. In Acts chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, we read this. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So this wild, loud noise sounds like the blowing of a violent wind fills the room. And and tongues of fire, maybe some long swirling flames or or bits of embers or or something simply unimaginable yet definitely supernatural, it comes to, to rest harmlessly and yet transformatively on each and every person there. The Holy Spirit of God fills each and every one of them. Not just the disciples who were closest to Jesus, not just the strongest or the smartest or the few righteous elite. Everyone in this house who believed was filled with the Holy Spirit. Throughout scripture, these signs of wind and fire are are powerful, are, are signs of the powerful manifest presence of God and his work through the Holy Spirit. But nothing like this has ever happened. The Holy Spirit filling and remaining with each and every member of God's people is something entirely new and and incomprehensibly wonderful. Before his crucifixion, Jesus had promised his disciples that a helper would come. And when that helper arrived, he would enable them to do wondrous, amazing things. You can see that in John chapter 15. And here in Acts 2, this helper has now finally arrived. And with his arrival, the followers of Jesus and and indeed the entire world are never going to be the same again. 
Those that the Spirit fell on and filled that day were the blessed with this ability to speak in other tongues. And, and we have to be careful because we don't want to confuse this with what the, the Apostle Paul will later write in, in, uh, in his letter to the Corinthians of their ability to speak in tongues. That's more of uh, something that involves the need for interpreters because people might be speaking in, in some sort of supernatural utterance or, or something that need, requires discernment of other believers. But what happened here is that these believers gathered in this room at this time were all of a sudden able to speak in many different languages other than their own. And because of this gift, the the Jews and the converts to Judaism that were gathered from all over in the Roman Empire who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, because of this gift, they, they could hear and understand what they were saying. And they were utterly amazed. They were bewildered. They were perplexed at how this, this odd gathering of Galileans, a, a people from a region that's not commonly known for its education or its cosmopolitan skills, how were these people able to do this wondrous thing, speak in all of these languages, and declare the wonders of God in the native languages of everyone who had gathered in the city that day. Let's pause for just a moment and consider how truly unique and special this is. In fulfillment of a promise of Jesus, the Holy Spirit falls and fills, falls on and fills the people of God with the power of God. And what is it that this power is meant to accomplish? It does not raise an army. It does not destroy the enemies of Israel. It is not power that can be wielded for for the purposes of war or ruin or vengeance or personal gain. The Holy Spirit gives God's people the, the power to speak truth in such a way that anyone in earshot is going to hear the gospel proclaimed. They'd hear the heralding of a new age. They would be invited to accept the invitation to their redemption through Christ. Now, you and I may not have this exact same gift. To the best of my knowledge, the only language that I'm going to speak this morning is English. And unless someone wants to hear uh, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star sung in Latin, the only language I'm capable of speaking is is English. Y'all don't think I can do it. Come find me after. I will sing you Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star in Latin. What we do have, however, is, is as followers of Jesus Christ, we have this same Holy Spirit that united these 120 believers, that came to fill these people. And our mission, therefore, therefore, is the same as theirs. Our responsibility and our privilege as people who have experienced the Holy Spirit's arrival into our lives and into our hearts and into the depths of who we are is to find a way to proclaim this same message of hope and salvation that they proclaimed on that day to every tribe, every tongue, every nation, to the ends of the earth, until Jesus comes. We're going to talk a lot about the gospel and how to share the gospel and how to talk to other people about Jesus as we go through the book of Acts over these next few, uh, few months. And along the way, we hope to share some tools and share some ideas of how to help you uh, learn better how to share your story, how to share what you know about Jesus with others. But this morning, I want to start just with this, this simple question, start thinking about this as we get into the book of Acts. Do you believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will bless you with both the ability and opportunity to share what you know to be true with the people around you? Do you believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, this same Holy Spirit is eager, is waiting, is wanting to give you the same kind of ability, the same kind of opportunity to go out into the world and share the truth you know with the people around you? If your answer to this question is yes, then my challenge to you this week will be, so what are you going to do about that? 
What are you going to do about the fact that you believe that the Holy Spirit wants to give you this opportunity? What is one, uh, what is one definitive, specific, tangible way that you can speak to somebody, that you can engage someone in a spiritual conversation and, and talking to them about Jesus and talking to them about the gospel this week? And what is one specific, tangible, distinct way? What is something you can write down and pin down and say, I'm going to try this this week to talk to somebody I know about the things I believe and the things I've experienced through the love of Christ? If your answer to this question is no, if, if your answer is honestly, I, I just don't know if I'm cut out for telling others about Jesus. I love him, I follow him, I believe him, but anytime I get close to, to sharing him, I just break down and I get nervous. I want you to know that you're not alone. All right? To be honest, I often, and I'm, I'm an outreach pastor, I'm in professional ministry, I often feel like I don't know what I'm doing when I tell people about the gospel or when I try to go find opportunities to share about what I know about Jesus with others. But I want you to, to know, I want you to trust me that it is worth it. It is so worth it to try and grow and get better and even find delight in sharing this news with others and talking to other people at Jesus. There is a, a goodness and a wonderful, just a uniquely wonderful thing that you don't experience anywhere else when you talk to others about the things you believe in a loving and, and hopeful way. So if you really don't know if you're cut out for this, my, my encouragement for you this week would be simply this. Begin with prayer. Begin with prayer. Spend some time humbly seeking God and asking the Holy Spirit to help you seek opportunities, to help you see these chances to share your faith with others. And when I say begin with prayer, I'm not just saying like pray tomorrow and then kind of, you know, that was enough and you'll come back to it next week. Begin with prayer means begin with a regular habit of engaging this question before God in prayer. Pray for the courage to start a spiritual conversation with somebody. Trust that the same Holy Spirit that gave these first Christians the ability to tell others the good news that, that God once shared with the world, that same Holy Spirit will give, give you these opportunities as well. The people of Jerusalem have no idea what to think about this bizarre scene. Right? These 120 people come, come rolling out of this house and they're speaking all these languages. Some of them mock them. They, they kind of look at them and they think, well, all of those guys are clearly drunk. And then uh, others realize that these, these strange men and women are holding conversations with all of these people from fifth, like no fewer than 15 different regions and languages and dialects are represented here. And they're stunned. They're thinking, how, how is this possible? Eventually, the obvious question is asked, what does this mean? What on earth is going on here? And in response, the, uh, Peter stands before the crowd. He comes, he comes before the crowd, comes out of the, the group of 120, stands before the crowd. And first, he kind of lightheartedly dismisses the idea that, that the problem is that they're drunk. He says, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning, guys. That's, that's not what's happening here. And then he begins to unpack this, this miracle that they're all experiencing. And what he says is nothing short of incredible. Peter will go to the Old Testament for his response. And, and in verse 16, we see him quoting the, the prophet Joel. And it says, No, this is what was sp spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. 
and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is a lot, a lot we can unpack here, but for the purposes of this morning, I want to draw your attention to to three key details that Peter says comes out of this prophecy from Joel. First, he he connected what was happening to these 120 believers directly to this prophecy that Joel had, had given before. And the prophecy contains wisdom and insight for identifying the last days or or this era of human history that would occur before God's judgment and the day of the Lord. All right, so that's what Peter's doing. He's connecting what's happening here to the prophecy of Joel. And then second, Joel's prophecy contains two distinct periods of of really unidentified and, and indeterminate lengths of time. All right, the first period occurs when God's people receive the Holy Spirit and begin to prophesy. Men and women, young and old, free, servant, and slave will all gain this God-given ability to speak the truth. And this can be a little, little fuzzy sometimes because sometimes we often we, we mistake this, the ability to prophesy as this idea of being able to predict the future or say for sure what's going to happen in the future. But in Scripture, the ability to prophesy is the ability to speak a true message that is from God. Right? Prophecy at its core is the ability to speak a true message that is from God. And so it may or may not have anything to do with the future, but it's absolutely going to have everything to do with God's will and God's plans and God's desire to redeem his beloved and lost creation, which means you and me and the people around us. Peter is pretty clearly indicating that he believes this first period of Joel's prophecy, this first section of Joel's prophecy, it has arrived in this moment when the Holy Spirit has begun to fill these 120 believers and will continue to play out through the church as the Holy Spirit continues to fill the people who believe and follow the Lord. But Joel's prophecy has more to say than this. It also shows the promise of, of showing wonders and signs from heaven uh, and on the earth below, which will include, quite honestly, very frightening stuff like the sun being blocked out and, and there being chaos and blood and fire and smoke billowing. And, and these periods, as, as we close in on this time, are known as of the last days, we believe are still to come. To the best of our knowledge, these are still to come, are still things that are being played out. And it's not for us to know how long it might be until all of those things come to fruition. The only thing we can know for sure is that all of this will precede the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. That day will be a day of final judgment. And at the end of the world as we know it, and the remaking of creation into a place that God and humanity can dwell together forever. I know that's a lot. We're almost done here. Stick with me. All right. This leads us to the third key of this prophecy. And, and this really, like, if you're, if you're muddled through and not sure what's going on about all this, pay attention to this part, because this is the good news. This is the promise we need. Because it leads us to the third detail of this prophecy, because the day of the Lord is not something that you want to be caught with where you don't have an assurance of being saved. And what Peter says, what he, what he emphasizes the, that the prophet Joel told the people that came from God was that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord before that day, before that time, uh, in order to, to, to save themselves, to be saved from that, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the question that must have been then burning in the hearts and the minds of the crowd at this point is, well, if there is a Lord that we can call on to be saved from all this, where is he? Who is he? Who is it that we need to turn to? What do we need to do in order to call on the name of this person who is going to come and save us? And it's here that Peter delivers his first public proclamation of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
At verse 22, he goes on and says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. The one we must rely on for our salvation, the Lord we must call out to to be saved from the coming judgment, is the one sent by God, verified by the power of God, and knowingly handed over by the plan of God to be brutally and wrongfully and wickedly put to death on a cross by the very people who needed him the most. But even death was no match for this sovereign will of God. The power of death was broken. It could not hold one such as Jesus. The grave has no true claim on God's only begotten Son. In verses 25 through 35, Peter will craft a fantastic argument from Scripture about how Jesus is actually this long-awaited Messiah. He's the one that King David was writing about, the one that King David prophesied about would come, and his, and his throne, his reign would be, would be eternal. It would never end. It's worth so much more study than we're going to give it this morning, and I'm sorry about that. But I want to draw your attention to this, to this one key, just this amazing, shocking, earth-shattering thing that Peter says here in verse 36. Because to cap this, this argument off, to, to, to really send home to the people what's going on, he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, Lord and Messiah. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, Lord and Messiah. Peter has told his listeners that in order to be saved, they must call on the Lord. And then he broke the news to them that the Lord that they needed to call on was Jesus of Nazareth, the man that they had just unjustly murdered a few weeks before. He then made it clear that Jesus is not just some guy, not, not just someone uh, that, that you could ignore, but he was in fact the long-awaited Messiah and the Son of God. And their foolish attempts to kill him hadn't worked because God raised him from the dead and gave him full of power and authority and dominion and control over all creation, including over the people who had just contributed to his death. They had been so, so sure that they were right, that Jesus was just some mortal nuisance, that he was a problem here today, gone tomorrow, now dead and buried and yesterday's old news. But now they learn just how very, very wrong they had been. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What could they do? What could any of us do? Are there sacrifices enough to even the scales of a debt like this? They tried to kill the Son of God. They know they're in trouble now. Because, and they scramble, desperately hoping that there is something within their power, something they could do to make this right. And the question they ask is not one of curiosity. They are cut to the heart. Their voices crack. Their bodies tremble. Because whatever the answer to this question is, whatever Peter is about to say to what is it we could possibly do, certainly, certainly it's going to come with a high cost. How could it be any other way? And then Peter responds with the grace and the mercy 
and the unbelievable scandal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In response to their question, what is it? What could we possibly do in response to what we've done? Peter says this in verse 38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all who call on the name of the Lord. What could they do? What can any of us do? We can repent. We can be baptized. And we can receive from Jesus Christ, the Lord of our salvation, forgiveness. Forgiveness for our sins and the gift of the indwelling, life-changing, eternity-securing Holy Spirit. Somehow, despite doing nothing to deserve it and everything to disqualify themselves from it, what God has to offer sinners is grace and forgiveness and reconciliation that paves the way to salvation. This was and has always been the gift of God. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. The final verses of our passage tell us that many who heard this call from Peter that day did indeed respond. They called on the name of the Lord and thousands that day became Christians. They chose to follow Jesus. Their lives became forever changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the same offer of grace, the same offer of forgiveness and salvation that God makes for us today. Whether it's for the first time or the 5,000th time, I beg you to accept God's invitation. Answer his call for your calling out to him. Call on the name of Jesus. Repent and turn away from the wrong you have done. Receive the Holy Spirit and be changed forever. The question, of course, is how do, how do we do this? What, what does this look like? What steps might we take to really understand this need we have to move toward this change and to move toward this desire to call on God? The fact that the Jews in Jerusalem had contributed to the crucifixion of the Messiah shocked and, and shook them to their core. It, it made them tremble before what they had done. It forced them to consider the depth of their wrongdoing and their desperate need for a power greater than themselves to save them. And I wonder how we might also come to terms with the ways that we've been wrong, with the ways that we've misunderstood what's going on, how we've mistreated Jesus in our own way. What might we need to realize, what might we need to confess in order to be cut to the heart and seek out our reconciliation with God? As a way of exploring this and, and exploring our need to call out to the Lord, I'd invite you to, to try this. In verse 36, it says, uh, it, it was Peter's statement, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Messiah. I encourage you to, to try this. Take out the word crucified, and then as you do, replace it with words to describe your own wrong attitudes, your own wrong actions, and your own wrong sinful habits. God has made this Jesus whom you tend to ignore until you need something from him, both Lord and Messiah. God has made this Jesus, whom you misrepresent to the world through your selfishness and sin, Lord and Messiah. God has made this Jesus, whom you willfully disobey, both Lord and Messiah. God has made this Jesus, whom you tend to keep at a safe distance from your heart, so he can't mess anything up you really enjoy, or make demands that are too great for you from you. 
God has made this Jesus Lord and Messiah. Just like those who first heard Peter's words on that day of Pentecost, we too must come to terms with the ways in which we've been wrong about Jesus. The ways in which we've disobeyed him, rejected him, and failed to truly turn to him and away from sin. But thanks be to God, the remedy for our sinful ways, and that was offered, the same remedy that was offered to them 2,000 years ago, that remedy is offered for us today. Brothers and sisters, what shall we do? Call on the name of the Lord. Call out to Jesus. Call out to the Savior of the world. If this is your first time in doing so, if you're here today and you're really at that threshold of saying, this is the first time I want to call out to Jesus, I rejoice and I praise God for you being here. And I'd love for you to come find me afterward. Come find me and I would love to pray with you. I'd love to rejoice with you and celebrate with you and answer any questions you might have. If you're already a believer today and you've called out like this before, just know that you can call out to him again. That forgiveness remains today and tomorrow and forevermore. I'd pray with you too. I'd love to celebrate with you too. You can come find me and we can, we can praise God for all that he's forgiven, forgiven you today. My hope and, and, and prayer and call is that we would all be filled with this overflowing power of the Holy Spirit and be changed today forever for the better. It is beautifully fitting that in light of today's passage, or, or in light of today's passage, that we celebrate communion together this morning. We celebrate coming to the Lord and remembering who he is. This sacred act of slowing down and recalling Jesus' words to us, his promises to us, his love for us, and his sacrifice, it, this is a perfect response to the realization of just how much we need to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. So please, I, I ask you, use this time. Use this sacrament as an opportunity to let your heart and your soul cry out to God and confess how much you need his son. And then rejoice and be glad because that gift is promised to all who seek it. Jesus is ready to forgive you today and tomorrow and forevermore. At our church, anyone who has confessed Jesus as, as their Lord and Savior is welcome to join us for this celebration of communion. In just a moment, we will all take our, our bread, and after some words of scripture, we will eat together. And then in the same way, we will, uh, I'll read some more scripture, and we will drink together. If you've joined us in person today, the, there are these cups out, just outside the sanctuary um, that you can, uh, you can grab. If you happen to miss it coming in, please feel free to stand up now and, and, and go pick one up so you can join us. The covering, simply tear off on one side, you get the bread, and then you flip it over, tear off the covering again, and the juice is, is inside. If you're watching uh, uh, at home with us, we're so glad that that's a way that you have joined us. We would, and we would love for you to join us for, for, for communion uh, simply by using whatever you may have prepared uh, to, to join us in partaking in communion. If there is anyone here today who does not yet believe in the gospel, who has not yet confessed Christ as their Lord and Savior, I want you to know that we are so glad you're here. And we're honored that you would allow us to, to, to be a part of your journey of seeking out the truth about God, seeking about the truth about Jesus. And we'd simply ask that you use this time to, to, to reflect on what you've heard today, maybe even try uh, praying or, or speaking to God. And if you have any questions about what you've heard, any questions about our church, any questions about what it means to follow the Lord, I love the opportunity, the gift of speaking to you after our service. For now, would you all please pray with me as we prepare our hearts for communion? Father God, we call out to the Lord this morning, knowing that we need forgiveness. 
We cry out to Jesus knowing we need a Savior. And we rejoice in the promise that the Holy Spirit is with us right now in this room and in our hearts. In these next few moments, please hear our prayers of repentance. Respond to our needs, our grief, and our pain. Assure us, good Father, of your love. Remind us that your response to our sin was to come after us still with even greater and more unimaginable love. Please hear us now and come, Holy Spirit. Please come. Take a few moments to yourself to to pray and reflect on these words. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, as he sat with his disciples, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this as you gather in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took up a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the words of the Apostle Peter as true today as they were so long ago when your Holy Spirit put them in his head and on his heart and brought them forth in his speech. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all who call, for all whom the Lord our God will call. We believe this to be true, and we praise you for it. Amen.